0: As I uh, mentioned, and, and Scott did as well, we are beginning this, uh, this new series in uh, the season following Epiphany. A season that, that bridges the gap between, between the coming of Christ and, the, uh, and that first advent, his birth. And, and then we have uh, spent a couple other Sundays uh, following Christmas looking at his, his early childhood, you know, when he's a toddler and the Magi visit uh, when he's a young boy in the temple. And, uh, but it bridges the, uh, the time between that and when we eventually get to his fulfillment, that, that final week, in fact. Um, and in between, we have the season of Lent, so those 40 days leading up to Easter. Um, but there's also a, a, a backdrop. And if you're here for the first time or haven't been around for a while, you may have seen this just exquisite artwork behind me, this ancient art form from the uh, mid-last century. Uh, found in many a church basement, uh, flannel graph. And, uh, and so before, you know, a couple months back, we began uh, really leading into this time and, and kind of following the church year here by going through the entire Old Testament in four weeks, which was quite a challenge. Uh, fortunately, we had 32 feet of fuzzy cloth to help us there. We began with creation and calling on through to uh, the prophets and the promises. And that set a stage that, uh, that told the story leading up to the advent of Christ. And then last few weeks we were in a series called Small Gifts uh, as we looked at what it meant for God to, uh, to enter human history in a, in a small and seemingly insignificant way. Now often there's other small gifts in our lives that we miss how powerful they are until we receive and open them. And so now we're in a series called uh, Jesus Revealed, which is just another way of saying epiphany. Because that's all the word means. Sounds like a real fancy word, epiphany. It's just a, it means to show, to reveal, uh, to make known. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, not only using all those lectionary passages, but during the message time in particular, looking at the gospel passages and see what they say about the words and deeds of Jesus uh, and how they speak to, uh, to what's being revealed and what we need to see during this season of epiphany or following epiphany. And so a question going into that for me and you as well is what do you need revealed to you? That's one of those loaded questions because sometimes we have no clue until, until it comes our way that that's, oh, that's what I needed to know. That's what I needed shown to me. But think about that for a moment. Is there some aspect of who Jesus is that you wish was clearer or an experience and here at Artisan, it's wonderful. We have a huge spectrum from, from folks who've been followers of Christ for, uh, for decades. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family or one that faked it going to church. I didn't start following Christ until my teen years. But now I have a few years under my belt, so I, I figured it's been a quarter century. Uh, but I still have some things I wish would be revealed. You know, how does, how does prayer really get answered? You know, what, when it doesn't, what does that reveal? Uh, I want answers to that stuff. There's also many here, uh, or some here, that are relatively new followers of Christ, that in the last uh, you know, few weeks, months, year or so, that's been a new reality in your life. And so you may have all kinds of questions, and, and hopefully you're filled with wonder more than worry, but you're, you know, there's more that you wish to know and understand. And then thankfully, I, I really thank God for this even though my memory starts to fade after a quarter century, remembering when I wasn't a follower of Christ and being in that seeking and searching mode. Uh, there's some of you here that you maybe think he's a wonderfully historic figure, um, but you're not quite sure, is there a God? What does it mean? You're, you're hanging out here because you, you know, like the coffee or it's good music or you got a friend that, that brought you along. And... At the very least, though, there's some openness. Because, honestly, you wouldn't bother to be here if you weren't at least curious that who knows what we might happen, what crazy things uh, could go on here. Here's hoping for some crazy stuff. So what do you need revealed? What sort of personal epiphany? And if you don't quite have an answer to that question, are you at least willing to have one anyways, to have something revealed? And so the passage Scripture we're going to look at to help us do that is in Luke chapter 3. And uh, if you're using those red Bibles that are provided, what, go ahead and grab one of those if you brought your own. But there's uh, Bibles there under the, under the chairs. And Luke chapter 3 is on page 834 in these red Bibles. And we're going to look at the passage, I think I mentioned this before, where Jesus is baptized. And it's, uh, it's the passage suggested, the gospel passage for this Sunday in the, in the church year. And it's an interesting event why does Jesus get baptized? If anyone didn't need to be baptized, surely it was him. And yet he does so, and there's some things that surround that, and some things apply, implied by that and set in motion, that I believe tell us something that, that are an epiphany of sorts. And so actually it's a pretty good kickoff. So let me uh, read from, a, from Luke chapter 3, and then we'll start fleshing it out. And see what it says about how Jesus may be revealed to this and then what that may reveal to us. So Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, and then uh, we'll skip ahead a little bit to verse 21 through 23. And so the scene there is, uh, is John, the baptizer, it's actually Jesus' older cousin, just by a few months, who's uh, like a prophet of old, has come out of the wilderness, you know, just kind of you know, wide-eyed, crazy, hair all doing this thing. Uh, camel hair shirt, leather belt, eats bugs and honey. And, and like some fiery prophet from centuries past, he's been calling people to repentance. And as, as a physical act of prayer and, and recognizing that repentance, he's baptizing them in the Jordan. So that is going on. and People are coming from all around. And that's where we enter the story. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. It says, as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, whether he's the one God has sent, you know, he says powerful words on God's behalf, he's calling us to a new way of life, maybe this is who we've been waiting for. As they were asking those questions, it says, verse 16, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The imagery there being not merely of water that will cleanse for a while, but of of fire that will purify. Um, Consume those things that are passing away uh, and make pure those things that, that God wants to redeem and renew. He will baptize in that fashion. then he he throws in some strong words here. He says his winnowing fork, uh, which is a special kind of rake, pitchfork type of thing that you'd use to toss grain in the air so that the heavier uh, grains would fall to the ground and the wind would blow the chaff away. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. There's a metaphor there. To clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. And so, you know, burning, chaff, stuff being thrown in the fire may not seem like good news at first. Unless you have that imagery of of things being purified, not of things being just merely destroyed. Then jumping ahead, uh, there's a little side note there about about John, how he'll eventually be imprisoned and even martyred. uh, In fact, beheaded as he challenges the rulers and authorities there, but jumping ahead to verse 21, it says, "Now when all the people were baptized, and then when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, it says, "The heaven was opened." And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. There's this manifestation of God's spirit descending and anointing Jesus in that act of baptism. And then accompanying that it says, And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. So what is it about this Jesus undergoing what, what is now a sacrament along with uh, the communion table? Uh, this powerful um, sacramental activity. Uh, this act of worship. This uh, ritual what was it about him going through that that shows us something of his, of his nature, who he is? Um, anyone familiar with that phrase, the person and work of Jesus? You ever heard kind of those two things put together when he's described? Why do you suppose we do that, that both those elements are that, kind of that formulation? You have the person and work of Jesus. Any thoughts on why we might want to have both those being used to describe him? Go ahead and shout it out or or mumble it under your breath, whichever you prefer. Um, but I, I just soon hear what you have to say. Why, why, might we t- <laughs> why might we talk about the person and work of Christ? What do each aspect of that hit on? You have his person. You know, what's his, his identity his nature, who he is, but can you really separate that from what he does, what his mission and calling is, so you also have his work, uh, and the things he does, and what he's able to accomplish, can you really separate that from who he is? So we put those two together. So I thought it might be helpful to, to look at this passage through those two facets, through the person of Jesus and, and the work he does, and see, again, if there's, if there's an epiphany Not only for all of us in general, but maybe in some individual ways, uh, wherever we are, uh, in our faith, or in our seeking and searching. And so, let's start with the the person. This identity of Jesus. So there's that picture there in the scriptures of of the Holy Spirit. uh, Descending, there's this manifestation of some sort. Luke is the one that makes it the most tangible. Oh, in fact, I should mention, this this account of the baptism is one of the few accounts surrounding Jesus' life and ministry that's in all four Gospels. It doesn't mean that the other ones leave stuff out because they didn't know about it, or, but just each Gospel writer may have a different audience and purpose for putting together the, their Gospel to tell the good news of Christ, but for a particular group of folks. Uh, Gospel of Mark, probably one of the oldest ones, is, tends to be geared towards Romans. Uh, it's very action-packed, gets to the point. It's, a, it's kind of a guy's gospel. It's just all the most of the miracles, real short sentences. It uh, just gets the punchline quick. Uh, that's a good one. Gospel of Matthew is geared towards a Jewish audience, and so it really takes care to connect Jesus with, with the Jewish heritage, and, and assumes that it's the readers or, in fact, the first time, the, those who are hearing the, this gospel read aloud. Uh, would understand and would have a context of understanding all of what we've talked about, you know, these last you know, few weeks ago and going through the whole Old Testament scriptures. Uh, uh, John is written to, I don't know, it, it anticipates hippies or something. It's just, it's, it's people who listen to fish, you know, wear a lot of tie-dye. Uh, a lot of folks who come to artisan. Uh, the Gospel of John, where it's all light and the Word and it's just all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Whereas Luke is written primarily, uh, Luke is the only Gentile gospel writer, if you, if you recall that. He's, uh, he's non-Jewish, uh, it seems. He's a, he's a doctor by trade, uh, apparently very learned. Uh, he even knows to say learned instead of learned. Uh, he's very learned. Uh, he describes, he says in the beginning of the gospel of Luke, and also part two of that is actually the book of Acts, kind of confusing that the Gospel of John gets shoved in there. That's more just for layout purposes, apparently. But really, Luke and Acts are, are two volumes of the same work. But he says he wants to gather eyewitness accounts and know the details. And So, so he's um, he's writing to primarily a Gentile audience that also has Jewish folks in the mix. Um, and his account here of the baptism of Jesus is the briefest. He sort of gets through it the quickest. Um, but even still, He says some things. And so that picture, kind of come back to that, of the Holy Spirit is a picture of God's anointing. And it begins to reveal that Jesus is, in fact, God's anointed Messiah. In fact, that phrase is is sort of redundant because Messiah simply means anointed one. It's uh, the Jewish or Hebrew form of the word. Uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, H is not his middle initial, um, but Christ is not his last name. That's the Greek, somewhat Latin form of the same word that means anointed. And it's just that idea of, uh, of being specially called out. And the imagery in the Old Testament, and we occasionally use it. Uh, we're going to do a prayer series here in a few weeks, and I think there'll be some times where we'll do some, some prayers of healing. And Maybe you've seen that where people use anointing oil. It's not because the oil's magic. Uh, though we'll, we'll sell little bottles of it for a hundred bucks a pop here. Uh, no, we won't. we won't do that. <laughs> but uh, it's that it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so what's great in here is they just skip the oil and go right straight to the Spirit. And that action of the Spirit descending on Jesus is a way of, of confirming and affirming this idea that he's God's anointed Messiah. And, and what that... Int- was anticipated in the Old Testament was this deliverer, someone who delivered God's people from whatever oppression and, and darkness and confusion they were existing other, under. And so that's part of his, his identity. But then there's also how he fulfills some of the prophetic promises that we saw, oh, even hinted at here with, uh, with the kings and rulers. Uh, through the promises given to David, that covenant that was given to David, as well as reaffirmed and, and retold again uh, through the later prophets as well, we find out that Jesus is also of the line of David, uh, which is actually required for him to really be the anointed Messiah, that he has to meet those requirements. And so I spared you from reading all of it, but if you were to go on, uh, verse, verse 23 you know, it says Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. And then it begins to give this genealogy. In fact, in the gospel, there's two different genealogies. Remember I said the gospel writers sometimes had, uh, not, they all had different audiences in mind. And so Matthew has another genealogy, which starts in a very different place. It actually goes back to Abraham, which was in our calling and creation. Uh, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, and he had some daughters too. And I'm one of them. Uh, I'm one, of the, I'm one of the sons. Let's get that song right. Um, but he's the father of the Jewish people. So Matthew goes back to Abraham and works forward to Jesus. Where Luke instead starts with Jesus and works back to that original man. Which to a Greco-Roman kind of Hellenistic philosophical worldview, the idea of the, the, idea of the ideal man, which then we may say uh, also failed, it has now been and made new and done the right way in Christ, He works backwards. Um, but Matthew traces Jesus' lineage very clearly through Joseph, who is a descendant of David. But is there any issues with that of tracing his his lineage through Joseph? If he's going to fulfill this idea of uh, this this promise that for centuries had been foretold they would, that the Messiah would come through the line of David, see any problems with tracing it through Joseph? Anyone? Yeah, he's not really his bio dad, right? He's, a, he's, he's the adoptive father. Now, legally, by way of the Jewish law, that actually would meet the minimum requirements. That's sort of a loophole that Jesus is kind of from the line of David because Joseph adopted him. And it, it would meet the requirements, but let's be honest, it's kind of unsatisfying, isn't it? We, uh, oh, come on, it's got to be better than that. So Luke does something... Really interesting, but he's he's a bit subtle and sneaky about it because even though uh, the Jewish culture was very patriarchal, Greco-Roman world was not a whole lot um, more open to, uh, to paying attention to to women and their roles. So even though Luke will mention some later, it's not really you're not going to win anybody over by starting with that. So instead, he starts with uh, with mentioning Joseph, but then he says. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph. You know, letting it be known that he's not the biological son. And then he says, son of Heli, or at least our English translation says, son of Heli. That son part is actually not in there, it just says, of. And keeps saying, of, of, of. Uh, the only problem is, if you go to the Matthew genealogy, uh, apparently, uh, you know, it's that book that was banned in elementary school, Joseph has two dads, because there's a completely different guy mentioned in Matthew, I snuck that one in there. Uh, well, what's going on here is, scholars believe, I, I think it has a lot of merit, is that that Heli is not Joseph's father, but it's his father-in-law. So it's, in fact, Mary's dad. And so it's a sneaky way of, of, of putting Mary's lineage in there. Well, it's not that sneaky. I mean, you can figure it out. It's, it's not that obscure. But he traces it back. And so, you know, just pull a few snippets out there. He, uh, he works backwards. And so uh, it mentions uh, Heli, who, who, you know, as we kind of figure things out, and there's some other passages of scripture that, that, that connect the dots, that this is very likely Mary's dad. Um, then goes back and says, yeah, who goes back to the lineage and says, yes, the son of David, who's the, uh, the son of Jesse, son of Obed. So he's, he's part of the divinic. Kingly line. And then it goes back again to son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, uh, of course, um, bringing it as, as part of the Jewish, um, in the beginning of Israel and the people of God in that fashion. Clear back to son of Seth, son of Adam. And then it even says son of God. And so, so there's a picture so far of, of God's anointed Messiah, uh, of the line of David. And then, even that phrase, Son of God, takes us to the next idea. But the Son of God idea is not unique if we just read it in the genealogy there. Um, that phrase is actually used in other places in Scripture. Uh, it's often it's plural, sons of God, you know, in the Old Testament, referring often to, uh, to angels and, you know, and their power and, and inscrutable nature and, you know, an overwhelming majesty. And, and so to look upon them is to is to see these mighty creatures, you know, these sons of God. Sometimes used to uh, apply to, to mighty men and warriors and, you know, and those things. And even in the sense that we often say, you know, someone's a, a, a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God. A little more generically and, and very sort of group hug kind of connotation to it there. But the part that really nails the idea of him being the son of God is that voice from heaven. So not only does the spirit descend, but the whole trinity is at work. That one God, but Father, Son, and Spirit. And this voice from heaven declares, not this is one of the sons. Oh, look, another great son of mine. It says, no, my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And so, anointed Messiah of the line of David, the son of God. And there's kind of a cool thing going on there that, if we don't know some of the historical surroundings, uh, we might miss. But that idea of God's voice speaking that is actually pretty important. Uh, At this point in Jewish history, the idea that, uh, or how God would communicate what he's doing, what he's calling his people to do, um, the time of the prophets was considered over and done with. That God no longer spoke through His prophets. Uh, he no longer, in the way He used to at least. There was folks who had the title of prophet and did some of the, the job description, but they were more middle management. They weren't really prophets, capital P, like like the olden days. Which was part of what was so fascinating about John, the Baptist. When it says a prophet as of old, the reason they're tagging that phrase in there because this is this is like the olden days. We heard about these guys, just crazy, wild eyed doing stuff and riling people up. Um, It hasn't been 400 years since we've had a real prophet. Um, But what the Jewish uh, scholars and the rabbis and chief priests, Sadducees, you know, all those folks, they figured if God's going to say anything, it will be an audible voice. And so that was considered authoritative, authoritative, a voice from heaven. And so you have that, this voice declaring, this is my son. But there's also another piece in that uh, the requirements of the law, the law in the sense if you were going to bring an accusation or you were going to uh, prove a case in a a court of law before a judge, that you needed two witnesses. And so you have these two. You have this voice from heaven and you have that prophetic witness of John, which hasn't been around for centuries. So you have both those coming together and saying, this is... um, the Anointed Messiah, the Line of David, Son of God, um, and actually that's the first time of, of three different incident, incidents where where God the Father speaks. Um, the other time is that that weird account of the Transfiguration, um, which is usually how this this season after Epiphany ends. We're going to bring in another set of scriptures uh, that week, and then the final time is in the Gospel of John when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And God speaks. God the Father speaks. And so that's his person. But as we said, you can't really separate out his person from his work. That who he is is going to form what he does. And what he does can only be effective and fulfilled if who he is is up to the task. And so let's look at that for for a few moments also. His work. What's What's the mission that he's on? He's on a mission from God. What does that look like? Well, again, it's kind of odd that he gets baptized. Because if anyone doesn't need to be baptized, it's Jesus, right? So what does that say about his mission? That he enters into this activity and literally enters the same waters that all these folks are, are coming into to repent and turn to God? Well, it says he's come to identify with sinners. That though without sin himself, and living in a perfect obedience to God the Father, he's not above the fray. He's not some spiritual wispy being that's just faking being human. That he really has our full humanity. He's fully God, but he's fully human. And he enters those same waters. He enters the same experience. Now what he does with that experience, thankfully, is different than what we in our all-too-full humanity do. But it's good to know that he's not standing on the banks of the river saying, once you're all cleaned up, get it all together, then come see me. He gets right down there in the mess. Um, So he identifies with sinners. But also, there's this interesting theological phrase that Matthew's account draws out more fully, that it's also to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness. What does that mean? To fulfill all righteousness. Here's here's how Matthew describes this account. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. And uh, you can follow along there. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So Jesus purposely came to be part of this, this activity, to take part in this, to be baptized by John. It says, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You know, John's a sharp guy. Uh, he recognizes something in Jesus. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. It says, then John consented. So John must have understood what that phrase meant. Um, Anyone want to take a stab at that? I think there's, there's some things we can draw for that. But any ideas? And, and why would John, this prophet of old, who is familiar with the Old Testament, for them it was the Testament, um, the Scriptures, if Jesus said this is to fulfill all righteousness, what, what do you suppose is meant by that rather rich statement? Any ideas? You can be as profound or just mundane as you choose. may want to expand the idea beyond just his baptism, but if this is the inauguration, the beginning of his earthly ministry, what he's going to do over the next three years or so as he heads towards the cross, um, what is he going to be fulfilling in his life and his work? What's that up here? So there's prophecy involved in 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 things like being of the line of david being born in bethlehem you know but but then living in, in nazareth and all these all these weird things but even uh, the prophecy with john preparing the way in the wilderness and in that connection that now he's intersected with with john that's a prophecy as well but you have some more involved with that so he's also living the perfect life, yeah. he's, he's the example he's the one who actually does it so he's fulfilling the requirements which are which are you know Pretty easy. Be nice to people. Recycle. Um, you know. <laughs> you know. Don't don't cheat on your taxes. You know, unless it's for for things you don't believe in. Um, you know, stuff like that, right? What are the requirements? Anyone? Just you know, in, in general, what are the, uh, the requirements that he's fulfilling? So, which would be don't murder people. Most of us keep that one right, but. Start getting to the ones like, don't lie. And as soon as you say, that one I've kept, gotcha, because you're you're lying. Um, You know, don't covet, don't steal. uh, Don't covet or steal your neighbor's wife. Or or there's other phrases thrown in the King James that make me giggle. Um, Don't, uh, yeah, and we fail to do that. That's why it says in Romans, all... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he is this perfect fulfillment of that. He's, he does what, as Luke has traced the genealogy, he does what Adam failed to do. He reverses that and fulfills that and there's, there's some other things. Uh, any other quick thoughts on that? from Ken? Well, sure. I, I think that may be taking a literal interpretation of Genesis that the text doesn't require, not, not to mention it doesn't say apples. I hear, and then now I want to hear from Jamal as well. Go ahead, Anita. So part of the fulfillment isn't like, oh, great, you know, God comes and he can do it. It's that he truly takes on our full humanity. And it's, let's be honest, it's a mystery we can hardly get our heads around being sort of here trapped in time and space. But, you know, in other parts of Scripture, it talks about Jesus in uh, Philippians chapter 2 emptying himself, uh, sort of choosing not to call upon his full divinity and, and maybe even going through a process of discovery that he is son of... I mean, we can get into all kinds of crazy stuff there, that, that though that was there, he chose not to, uh, you know, know, you know, he was God from all eternity as he's there in the, in the manger, but he actually chose to be a baby, and then a toddler, and a 12-year-old, and now a a 30-year-old man. Um, We don't know. It's not clear. But if he's fully human as well, then not only does he fulfill it in some abstract way, he does it on our behalf in the way that we need to. He does it as one of us, going back to that identifying as sinners. So to fulfill all righteousness, and there's there's so much more in that. Uh, And then here's in the picture of baptism itself, uh, which I think the uh, the image, that kind of beautiful piece of artwork that uh, was rotating earlier on shows John, you know, pouring water over Jesus' head. Which, which, when that piece of artwork was created, that was a more common form of baptism by by pouring or sprinkling. But really, the word baptismo or whatever means just plunging, immersing, you know, pushing under the water, and so. As people are being baptized, it's not, you know, just a few sprinkles or some pours here and there. They're being, you know, plunged under, held a little bit, and then brought back up. And the picture there is this foreshadowing that indicates something else about his work that is inaugurated here, set in motion, but then we won't see its fullness until, until the cross and the empty tomb. But his primary work isn't just to identify with us, you know. He's not the great commiserator. Though that's great to know. It's not merely to fulfill the law, because again, what good's that to me? Uh, that's great that someone did it, but, you know, I'm still screwed. Uh, it's that he came to conquer Satan, sin and death. And in that picture of baptism, you see the means by which that victory is, is secured. It's through his, his death and burial. In resurrection. And you have a, a picture of that in that sacrament of baptism. That those powers that we are both born into and we gladly participate in. You know, we are sinful by nature, which seems kind of like, you know, that doesn't seem quite fair uh, until we so readily choose to, uh, you know, be our own rebellious self anyways, then we realize, okay, so maybe I am on the hook for this too. Uh, so both those things are true. And so there's, there's the work as well. Um, and so as you put those two together, uh, this picture comes out. In, uh, and I love how Romans chapter 8, in some ways puts all these pieces together. His person and his work But here's these words from from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Because here's what is accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is foreshadowed in that act of baptism. And is is reappropriated, recapitulated when when those who seek to follow after Jesus obey him in that that outward act of of an inward reality as well. But Romans 8, 1 through 8 says... There is therefore now no condemnation. Those are some good words right there. There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, and he comes to identify with sinners, which then allows us to identify with them. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, hear that not to say, "Hey, it's going to be okay," but to actually deal with sin. He condemns sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement. For the wages of sin are death. That sucks. Because that's kind of a one-time payment that, you know, then you're done. Unless someone can pay it in such a way that there's a, a better story on the other side. So that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Not just by Jesus, but in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so, this picture of Jesus' baptism, this is sort of a back-to-the-basics kind of message tonight. Uh, Didn't have to be real clever, uh, whether I sometimes are or not is debatable, or am or not. uh, It's just the basic story of the person and work of Christ. But again, we're not just telling the story so we have more good information. We're genuinely seeking an epiphany. And so when you're struck by that, whether hearing it for the you know thousandth time, or maybe if I got out of the way enough, hearing it clearly for the first time, what does that begin to reveal? not only about Jesus, but about how you might respond. Those familiar with the story of, of why John was baptizing, setting, kind of setting the stage for Jesus uh, to now enter the picture, uh, how was John's baptism described? It was a baptism of... starts with R, ends with Entence, um, has a little ep in the middle there. Um, It was a baptism of repentance. And so a very appropriate response when we're confronted with the reality of, of Jesus is to do as others were doing, to repent, which is one of those, you know, what does that even mean? Here's what it means. I'm going to turn away from what I was doing apart from God and sort of set my sights on what God might call me to do. And it's a great first step. It is not the sum total of what happens or needs to happen. But it's one of those things, without that, you're never going to get to the the part that matters anyways. Um, Because it's a repentance that is meant to lead towards what is Jesus' full purpose. Our redemption. Our redemption. And so, let me end with, with this passage from Romans 6. Verses 3 through 5. And these are words of encouragement for those who have already been following Christ, whether for a short time, for a small season, or for decades. Uh, these, are, these are words of, of a reminder that here's the promise that you have. It's also held out as words of hope for those who aren't yet, not merely baptized in the activity of being dunked in some water, as wonderful as that ritual might be, but that baptism with the Spirit, that cleansing fire, that reality of God taking up residence in our life. Here's the hope that's held out for those who maybe are seeking, searching, and haven't yet experienced that. Romans 6, 3-5 says, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. By baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so the person and work of Jesus is revealed in his baptism. In some amazing ways. And as we begin to understand that, I think our identity and our calling begins to get revealed as well. Um, Let's pray. and See what God may say to us in our remaining time. So God, we do thank you that you are not a distant, aloof, abstract concept. That you, in fact, are a God who brings epiphanies. That you reveal yourself. You make yourself known. You do it through the wonder of creation. You do it through um, the the revelation that we have uh, in all the scriptures. But all those are insufficient. And so we thank you that you literally come in the flesh. then in the person and work of Jesus, Son of God, you enter human history and you make yourself known. And We thank you that that, that epiphany was not some you know, singular event or three years, you know, some two millennia ago, but that it's fresh and stays relevant and available for us today. And so my prayer is that those questions we were asking earlier, what do I need revealed, God? What do you have to show me? What areas of my faith do I need to know some some new things, experience some newness? Where in this journey of of seeking and searching and and wondering if you're even there, God, Um, can you make yourself known so I can have confidence to place faith in you? I pray, God, that you'd make that clear, that there would be whatever epiphany is necessary to each person here. And that there'd be a response of repentance and an embrace of your redemption, whether it's in a renewing or for the first time. And that we would not merely uh, go through the motions of things like baptism, but we would experience that cleansing, healing Forgiving reality of the gift of your spirit and that fire shut up in our bones that causes us to just live out a life for you. Reveal that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, it's appropriate, we do this every week, but as, as a bookend to this, this initial uh, sacrament that Jesus set in motion, every week we also have the Lord's table. And if baptism is a, an enactment of sorts of his death, burial, and resurrection, the Lord's table shows l- literally the elements of that, which is what we often call them. That it's through his broken body and shed blood, which for us, you know, We tear a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice as a way of remembering that that was what accomplished that victory, that defeat of Satan, sin, and death, Uh, and that's a gift to us. So if you're seeking to follow after Jesus, however poorly you think you do that, this table is for you. If you're still standing on the banks of the the Jordan, so to speak, you you may have kind of put a toe in there just by being here, but eh, you're not quite ready to take the plunge. It is appropriate and mature and actually maybe even more spiritually meaningful to wait on that than to just go through some motions or fake it. Um, But in between those two responses, what a great first step of faith. Uh, If you feel God drawing you to himself in Christ, uh, that would be a wonderful way of, of beginning that journey as well. And so the table's open as, uh, as the musicians start to hit up. Uh, you guys can feel free to take communion as well. Uh, I will pray for that. And if there's any that want to talk with someone, pray. You know, there's the pastors here. Uh, if you prefer to talk to a woman, we have uh, I don't know if any of our leadership team members are here tonight, but uh, here, I'll volunteer some folks. Uh, Anna, stand back there in the corner, she'll pray with you. <laughs> Adele, I know Adele and Tracy are out there. So if you're a woman and you don't feel like talking, I want to Us guys at first, uh, they can talk and pray with you as well. Well, Let me pray for communion and uh, and open the remaining time of our worship. So God, we do thank you that that you make available us room at the table. And you uh, break bread with us, Christ, and share your fellowship. And in the sacrament of the bread and in the cup, uh, we have communion with you. So nourish us through that, we pray. Draw us to yourself. Reveal yourself to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open. Continue to worship as God leads you.